What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. Happy Saturday. I hope everyone had an amazing week so far. Like every other week in sports, it was packed. We obviously have the NBA and NHL playoffs going on right now. The NBA draft lottery happened this week also with the Spurs winning the number one overall pick. We have the PGA Championship happening right now at Oak Hill in New York. Pat McAfee signed with ESPN. Francis Ngannou signed with the PFL. And a lot of stuff is going on in the sports world. But today I want to talk about two specific things. First, we're going to talk about Fanatics and their $150 million purchase of PointsBet's U.S. sports betting business. Then we're going to roll into YouTube TV. They absolutely shit the bed on Wednesday night with their coverage of the NBA playoffs. And they obviously have NFL Sunday ticket coming up this fall. So we'll run through some of the struggles they're having there and how they might be able to fix some of this stuff. All right, let's get into it. All right, the first thing I want to talk about today is Fanatics. Now, it's no secret that Fanatics wants to get into the sports betting business. You guys know them as this big e-commerce player. They represent virtually every single major professional sports league when it comes to selling merchandise online. I think it's over 900 professional sports teams. They represent all the leagues. A lot of the leagues actually hold equity, right? So the NFL owns equity. They own more than a billion dollars of equity combined between them, the MLB, the NBA, the Players Associations, and so forth. Now, on the betting side, this is all relatively new, though. It's a completely new business from scratch. They went out and they hired the former FanDuel CEO, Matt King, in 2021. And this was right after they raised $325 million from a group of investors that it, it was like the who's who's of who's investing. It was Jay-Z, Major League Baseball, SoftBank's Vision Fund. It was everyone you would want from an investment perspective. Fanatics chairman Michael Rubin then sold his 10% stake in Harris Blitzer Sports and Entertainment, HBSE. For those of you that don't know what Harris Blitzer is, they own a few different sports organizations. They're the owners of the Philadelphia 76ers and the New Jersey Devils in the NHL. So Michael Rubin sold his 10% stake in that business, which means he's no longer a co-owner of those franchises. And he did this for one simple reason. As the business continues to grow and they start venturing into other verticals like sports betting, it's a conflict of interest, right? So he takes himself out of that situation. He cannot own a sports betting company and have ownership in these teams. Again, there could be things that arise from that. So he removes himself from the situation. And then they have now spent the last 12 months quietly, but aggressively, implementing a plan to chase down the two biggest players in the US, FanDuel and DraftKings. BetMGM is third, but look, everyone knows. It's FanDuel first, DraftKings second, and that's who they're chasing down. The plan this week, though, took another step with the acquisition of PointsBet. So Fanatics is paying $150 million in cash to buy the U.S. business of the Australian sportsbook PointsBet. So for those that don't know how this works, PointsBet is an Australian sportsbook. They moved into the United States and Fanatics is solely buying the U.S. business, right? So PointsBet is going to keep their Australian business, their Canadian business, that. They're not going to have their U.S. business anymore. They're selling it for $150 million to Fanatics. Fanatics, I think, is paying $100 million upfront in cash today, and then they're going to pay the remaining money at the end of this year or maybe like February next year, the $50 million. The other part of this that's fascinating to me is like, this is a massive, massive discount. The deal comes out to at $150 million in cash based on the shares outstanding. It's like 71 or 73 cents per share. That's a 94% discount to PointsBet's all-time high share price of $13 a share in February 2021. So- a points bet share was worth $13 per share in 2021. It's now being sold for $0.73 cents a share. That's a 94% decline in price. 
Now, there's this interesting quote here from Matt King, again, the Fanatics betting and gaming CEO, formerly the CEO of FanDuel. He told CNBC, pricing and valuations in the category have clearly come down an incredible amount. If you look at points bet itself, it's down about 90% from its peak. Obviously, DraftKings and a number of other stocks are also down, along with the whole market. I would argue they've come much closer to reality. And what was happening a year ago reflected an irrational exuberance for the category overall. I would largely agree with that. And we'll get into why I think it's interesting and why ultimately I think this provides a unique opportunity for points bet and fanatics, right? So the fanatic sports book isn't going to be fully operational until football season. So call it fall 2023, but they already have 200 employees. They have more than 200 employees. They built the first physical sports book in an NFL stadium at FedEx field in Washington, DC. That's there right now. And a beta version of the app is currently being tested by users in Tennessee and Ohio. So the app is basically built. It's being tested. They have 200 plus employees working on this entire business. They have a physical sports book. Their branding is out there. They've been doing events. They're starting to do marketing. It's coming. This is no longer like an afterthought. Everyone thought for years, like, ah, maybe they won't do it. Maybe they won't do it. No, it's happening. This fall, it will be fully operational. They plan to be in every state that they can be in. And we'll get to why that's important. So this is where PointsBet comes in though. The Australian sports book has struggled, struggled to gain market share in the United States. They're routinely criticized for hitting users with low limits and tampering with successful gamblers. And the business was projected to lose $77 million to $82 million in the second half of this year alone. So the easiest way to think about this is, right, they own like, I think it's probably like 4% of the US market share today. They have 14 different states that they're live in and they're losing a shit ton of money, right? Everyone knows how this works today. DraftKings, FanDuel, BetMGM, like all these businesses are spending hundreds of millions of dollars and collectively billions of dollars every single year to acquire new customers. It's a land grab game, right? You're just trying to grab as much people as possible, bring them into your app. We know that sports bettors only download two apps typically, and they're not going to transition other ones, right? So when a new state opens, they're spending millions and millions and millions of dollars to acquire as many customers as possible on the hope that they can eventually monetize them with higher lifetime values to make it profitable for the sports book. Now, look, none of these businesses are profitable today. DraftKings and FanDuel, and they're all saying like, we're trying to get there, we're going to get there. But ultimately, that's not what it looks like today. So Fanatics said, we have a solution. They swooped in and they bought them for pennies on the dollar, right? Hey, you guys are losing a bunch of money. You want to exit this market. You want to go focus on Australia and Canada, which are growing businesses for you. No problem. Cool. We're, we're, we're good with that. We'll swoop in, buy you for pennies on the dollar. But again, like a lot of people are, are giving credit to Fanatics and Michael Rubin and King and all these guys by saying they got an incredible deal, right? They got a 94% discount to what points bet was worth just two years ago. But I think this is more of an indication of current market conditions versus Fanatics negotiation skills, right? Like this is where the market is at. Again, like Matt King said, DraftKings is down. Like all these businesses are down. Penn's down, right? Like all these sports betting businesses are tremendously down. And I think Fanatics just saw that, right? And they said, hey, look, we can buy you guys. This valuation is much closer to where we actually think the business is valued. If you back out the Australian business, if you back out the cash on hand, we think it's worth $150 million. And ultimately, that's what it was worth, right? That's what it sold for. So that was the market rate. But regardless, I think this deal makes a lot of sense for both parties. Now, Fanatics was losing a lot of money while not making much progress. And they needed to raise more capital soon, which would have come at a considerable discount valuation-wise. So instead of doing that, they decided to exit the US market and focus on their businesses in Australia and Canada, which are close to profitability. That seems like a smart, good, decent idea. Fanatics benefited too, though. They'll save tens of millions of dollars by gobbling up 
PointsBet's 14 state licenses. So let me explain why this is important for people who don't follow this market as closely. First off, New York, which has been criticized for their high, high tax rates. A lot of sports books claim that it wasn't profitable or it may not be profitable for a considerable amount of years. But what they did was they only allowed a certain number of, of sports books to operate there, right? So they only handed out license to, I think it was five. And it came with a $25 million licensing fee. Now, not only was PointsBet one of those sports books that was gained access into New York, but they paid the $25 million licensing fee. They also paid a $10 million fee in Pennsylvania and other states too. Right. So when you add up not only the access that Fanatics is going to get, but the fees that have already been paid by points bet that will now transition over to Fanatics with the technology that they have in place, the human capital, right? They have obviously a lot of employees, they have marketing efforts underway, they have technology efforts underway, all of that stuff. When you combine that with the market access that they're going to be getting from points bet, this deal's very clearly worth $150 million to me right? Like Fanatics has the money. It's not a problem that, right? They will figure out how to turn some of this stuff and whether they fire people or not, it doesn't really matter. The market access alone, the technology alone that they're going to be getting. PointsBet was making acquisitions last year. Like this business is worth $150 million. I don't doubt that one bit, but that doesn't make it easy for Fanatics, right? Like if you just think about the market in general, let's go over a few stats from 2022 that I wrote in the newsletter. U.S. sportsbook revenue last year was $7.5 billion. That was a 75% year-over-year increase. 39.2 million Americans bet on sports last year. They, they bet a total of $93.2 billion on bets. 36 states in Washington, D.C. are currently legalized with sports betting. And TV ads. Sportsbook purchased a total of $314 million of TV ads last year. Again, from a market share perspective, these numbers are from the end of 2022. It's the best data I could find when it comes to seeing where everyone was at. FanDuel has since said that they crossed 50% market share. Look, they said that like last month. So not every sportsbook is updating the data. I couldn't find relevant data. And this was at the end of 2022. So take this with a grain of salt that maybe they changed a little bit, but you know, relatively, this is correct. FanDuel owns 43% of the US sportsbook market share today. DraftKings, 25%, BetMGM, 10%, and basically a whole host of others at 9%. Points bet for consideration, I think it was around like 4%, maybe 3% at this time in 2022. So again, it's FanDuel, DraftKings, and then everyone else. But this doesn't make it easy for Fanatics is what I was getting at. The company is five years late to the party. If you think about when PASPA was repealed and sports betting officially went live and individual states could govern it themselves. And Fanatics' entire strategy is based on the successful combination of commerce and betting. For example, while other sportsbooks spend billions of dollars on marketing to acquire customers, Fanatics has long boasted about its database of 95 million plus users. So these are people that have bought merchandise or gear from Fanatics in the past. They have their email addresses. They know what teams they like. They know where they live. They know all of this data on them, right? And they think this gives them a, a huge advantage when it comes to customer acquisition. Because what do we know? DraftKings has told us in the past, they've literally told us that they spend $371 to acquire a customer, and that customer has a lifetime value of $2,500. Now, the economics on that makes sense, right? You would always be willing to pay $370. It sounds expensive, but if the lifetime value of that customer is going to be $2,500 to you, that sounds pretty good. And Fanatics is betting that they can lower that customer acquisition cost while extending the lifetime value through their commerce department. This is actually one cool note that Darren Robel wrote in Action Network earlier this week. He said, Fanatics users will receive 1% back for every dollar wagered on straight bets, 3% for parlays, and 5% for same-game parlays. That fan cash, what they're calling it, Fanatics is calling it, that they receive back on these bets can then be used to buy gear on Fanatics. 
So this is incredibly intelligent, right? Some of these sports books are doing this and they're literally just giving you cash back. But Fanatics knows that they have this massive e-commerce business and this merchandise business that these fans are interested in, right? Like who doesn't want gear from their team? Who isn't going to buy these as presents for their family or their friends or whatever, right? Like these are already customers that are using the platform today. They know that they want this gear. So they're saying, look, for every dollar that you wager on a bet, you're going to get 1% back that you can go use the buy on gear. You're going to get 3% back for parlays and 5% for same game parlays. And look, Fanatics is pretty simple about this. They just back into what they think it is from a risk-adjusted standpoint and where they're going to be able to make money on this. It's all data-driven. It's going to be really, really, really simple for them. Now, this is obviously going to take some time to play out, so I don't want to act like it's all going to be happening anytime soon. Michael Rubin has been very honest with people. He says, we're playing the long game. I want Fanatics to be the world's number one sports book. Not today, not tomorrow, not a year from now, not five years from now, a decade from now. He's always said a decade. And I want to read you this quote that he told Yahoo Finance earlier this year in February, actually. So it's relatively recent. And I think it gives good insight into like just where he thinks about the market today. Ruben said, online sports betting and iGaming is a business that we think for us will be a very significant business long-term. I'll put it out there. I want to be the number one player in the world long-term. So a decade from now, I'd be disappointed if we weren't the top player in the world, both in online sports betting and iGaming. We're just getting started. This business like a lot of businesses, so many people get into early because of how big it's going to be. And it will be big. And there's been so much money invested, in a lot of cases, lost. I think this business would become a good business long-term. It's a very tough financial business today. People investing not hundreds of millions, but billions of dollars in losses this year, and will continue to do so. From our perspective, we have probably the most digitally oriented transactional commerce brand, and we have the best database in all of sports. So that's a real structural advantage to help Fanatics become the ultimate leader in this business. And at the same time, give a better experience to the fans. And I think that's a fair assessment, right? It's like all these brands ran in as quick as they possibly could in the sports books and the investors and everyone along that because they knew it was going to be a massive market. And I don't think anyone's debating that, right? Like every time you talk about it, everyone's like, oh, it's the first inning. You know, this is going to be a huge multi, multi, multi-billion dollar market on an annual basis. It's only going to grow. It's going to get bigger. The share of population is going to increase. More people are going to approve this at a state level. And it's going to be massive. And that's all true. But you're losing hundreds of millions of dollars and billions of dollars every single year to try to grab as much land as possible. And Fanatics is betting that their customer experience and their platform and their sports book is just going to be better. And I would argue that like, look, A lot of people don't like Fanatics as it is today. They don't believe the quality of their gear is good enough. They don't believe that their customer service is good enough. And like, if you just tweet about or if you talk about Fanatics to other people around the sports world, there's a lot of like good and bad. And I think ultimately what has happened is that Michael Rubin has just put on a masterclass when it comes to business. He understands better than anyone else how much partnership and relationships, how much importance they can play when it comes to the success of your company. For example, When you look at Fanatic's investment roster today, who is invested in the company and who owns equity, Michael Rubin strategically gave all of the major sports leagues equity in the business. So they're incentivized with him to grow this business together. So what do they do? They give him the rights to run their e-commerce stores. The teams do the exact same thing. And then it creates these structural advantages where they're not going to give these rights to someone else, even if Fanatic's does a bad job because they own equity in the business and they're incentivized for that business to continue to grow. Obviously, you want the best customer experience for your fans. You want them to receive good gear. You want them to have a positive experience. But as long as Fanatics isn't doing anything atrocious or illegal or wrong, they're never going to ditch them. And Michael Rubin has done the exact same thing now when it comes to trading cards, right? He just signed deals with the NFL, with the NBA, with the MLB, all these leagues. He gave them equity in the business. 
And this business is already worth billions of dollars. And he destroyed all the incumbents because he understands how much partnership and equity aligning incentives can do for your business. So I think it's incredibly smart. I assume he'll probably do something similar with this. Obviously, he's raised money from a bunch of different people already that aligns incentives. And when you think about like where we are today, it's true that they're coming in five years late and FanDuel and DraftKings have all the market share and all this stuff, but there's still a long way to go. People forget that only 57% of the U.S. population currently has access to mobile sports. 57%. So 43% of the U.S., including California, Texas, et cetera, still does not have access to mobile sports betting. And Fanatics is going to come in. They're going to get New York. Eventually, those states will go live, you assume, at some point, whether it's California, Texas, or whatever. And Fanatics will be right there, ready to go, because the sportsbook is launching this fall. So I wouldn't count them out yet, especially when you consider the structural advantage that they have. I think we are in the first inning, if not, we'll call it the first half of sports betting in the United States. I think it's only going to get bigger. I think Fanatics is going to be a major, major, major player in this. Time will tell how big they become, but I wouldn't count them out yet. All right, everyone, quick break from today's episode to talk about our sponsor, OKX. Now, crypto is full of opportunities, but it's critical to choose the right exchange to make the most of them. And that's where OKX stands apart as a safe and transparent exchange. OKX is the world's most powerful crypto exchange, and it's certainly one of the biggest. They serve millions of users in over 100 countries, and you've probably seen their branding on the McLaren Formula One car. But what OKX is really known for is transparency. The crypto exchange publishes monthly proof of reserves reports to help you verify the total amount of assets on the exchange. And their on-demand liquidity network lets you trade instantaneously 24-7. So whether you're a retail or institutional trader, OKX is the right platform for you. I'm excited to have them as a sponsor, so make sure to go check them out at OKX.com. Again, that's OKX.com. All right, let's get back into today's episode. All right, the second thing I want to talk about and end today's podcast with is YouTube TV. Now, everyone knows about YouTube TV, obviously. They're one of the streaming services that came in a few years ago. I think it was 2017. They launched a product for $35 a month. And it was awesome. They had all these channels. It was much cheaper than cable. A bunch of people switched. They obviously have network effects from YouTube in general and Google and all this other stuff. So it was great. Everyone loved it. They signed up millions and millions and millions of customers. And they've grown over the years, right? The business is massive today. But on Wednesday night, I think it was, during the game one of the Eastern Conference Finals in the NBA, five minutes left in the game, Miami Heat versus Boston Celtics, the service literally just went out. It just went out. And this is something that happens, right? Mistakes happen errors happen, whatever. But you can't do this when you're a streaming service, right? Because everyone switched from cable under the premise that these services were going to be better. They were technology enabled. They were going to be much faster to adapt to different things. They were going to be cheaper. They were going to have more options. The user functionality was going to be better. And the service literally just shut off. And on some TVs, they were literally running Little Mermaid commercials nonstop. <laughs> like, come on. And it wasn't just the NBA. There was a few different channels that this happened to on the service, but people were pissed. They were, you know, very furious. And I tweeted out on Thursday morning when I woke up still thinking about it. And it was like kind of like a little bit over the top and definitely a little bit dramatic and half-hearted joking, to be honest. But I said, YouTube TV has doubled its price from $35 a month to $73 a month. They've removed regional sports networks and other channels like MLB Network. And they now crash with five minutes left in game one of the NBA Eastern Conference Finals. And then I said, if this happens with Sunday Ticket, people will riot. This is kind of fair, kind of unfair, right? The opening price for YouTube TV was $35 a month. Obviously, prices are going to increase over time with inflation and other stuff like that. Today, it's $73 a month. So the price has more than doubled over the last, call it six years. And they've removed channels, right? 
they don't have Bloomberg TV. They don't have Lifetime. They don't have MLB Network. They don't have NHL Network. They don't have any of the RSNs, AT&T, Sportsnet, Valleys, Fox Sports Regionals, none of that stuff. They don't have literally any of that stuff. We've seen a massive increase in price to the consumer with a reduction in the quality of the service, right? The channels that have gone away. So when you combine uh, the total annual price of this, it's now about $900 a year, which is more expensive than Hulu's bundled deal of Hulu, Disney Plus, and ESPN Plus. Obviously, that's a better deal today. I don't think anyone is arguing against that. And I think what what's tough for me, right? This is just my personal point of view is, as a sports fan, you, you need cable. You just do. You, you really do. If you're a hardcore sports fan or someone who does this for a job like myself, you need cable. I actually have both. I have cable and I have YouTube TV. And the frustrating part about this is I actually really like YouTube TV's functionality. I think it's a thousand times better than cable. It's easy to navigate. You can see exactly what you're looking for. You can record things pretty simply. It has machine learning algorithms in there so they can determine what you want to watch and what you're likely to click on when you come in. So they know, right? Like if a sports game's on, put it right up in front. I don't need to go through the guide. It's right there. I don't need to find what channel it's on. You're going to tell me exactly where it is. It's amazing. And some of the cable services are learning from this stuff too, but I literally have YouTube TV because it's easier to use and I enjoy it. And the frustrating part is one, there's typically a little bit of a lag. So if you don't want that, then you shouldn't have it. But I have to switch back to cable to view other stuff, right? Like if I want to go watch a baseball game on MLB Network, I can't watch it on YouTube TV. So I have to go to my regular cable. It's not that hard for me, but I assume, you know, it's it's frustrating to myself and other people too. And now we have this, this bigger bifurcation of rights across sports, right? If you look at the NFL, just this upcoming season, they're going to be broadcasting games on CBS, Fox, NBC, ESPN, ABC, Amazon, NFL Network, ESPN Plus, and Peacock. And then Sunday Ticket is now going to be on YouTube TV. So that's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. That's 10 different services. Now, obviously, CBS, Fox, NBC, ESPN, ABC, whatever, those are all linked into your YouTube TV and whatever cable network you have. So it's not like you have to buy 10 different services, but the bifurcation of rights is continuing. We saw earlier last week that Peacock got an exclusive NFL playoff game. They have a week 16 game as well. And part of this is like, let's maximize the amount of money. They're spending over $100 million for this one game. And I think at the end of the day, though, other people have said this too, so this isn't a unique thought, but I think it's widely considered to be accurate is that the NFL wants to create some type of leverage, right? Amazon is a tough negotiator when it comes to the rights. People have talked about this for years. They're building this entire sports division. Apple is kind of the same, thought of in the same light, and they want to involve other streaming players. So when it comes to 2033, or even earlier than that, to be honest, if they want to start going game by game or whatever it is, they want to have leverage against some of these networks and say, look, we're the freaking NFL. You're not going to bully us around. You're not going to tell us how much to pay. We don't care if you're Amazon or Apple or whoever. We're going to tell you. And I think that's ultimately what Roger Goodell and the owners across the NFL are trying to do today. But the more concerning part to me is YouTube TV paid $2 billion for the rights to Sunday Ticket, $2 billion a year. You have to have YouTube TV. Well, you don't have to, but it's cheaper. So you pay $350 if you have YouTube TV. So it's YouTube TV 72 or whatever it is a month, $73 a month, plus $350 for the year if you want Sunday Ticket. And if you don't have YouTube TV, then you have to pay $450 for the year for Sunday Ticket. Now, they're offering a little bit of a discount, I think, until June 6th or 7th. Don't quote me on that. But June 6th or 7th, I believe it is, where you can get a $100 discount for subscribing to YouTube TV. But if this happens, if we have errors like this or whatever it is, there's going to be massive problems. And if you look back on when YouTube TV was announced as the partner for Sunday Ticket, 
I don't want to act like Sunday Ticket didn't have problems before this, right? DirecTV, I've had numerous issues with it. Uh, you know, it goes out. People were joking online, like DirecTV used to go out when it rained, which is true, right? Like DirecTV wasn't perfect. They were losing millions of dollars on this service every single year just to be able to bring customers in for Sunday Ticket. It was like their calling card. Eventually, they decided it wasn't worth it. They they get rid of the rights and NFL goes out. NFL literally didn't have that many bidders for the service. And YouTube TV just came in over the top, $2 billion. Boom, here we are. We want the rights. And the part that's interesting to me is when YouTube TV was announced, I was one of these people, and I think a lot of other people were online too, which was, I thought, and other people thought, that YouTube TV was going to be amazing for Sunday Ticket. And the reason why I thought that was because of the innovation and the stuff that they're able to do on the technology side, right? They're able to do multi-viewers. We saw it during March Madness where they had multiple screens up at a time. You could watch four or five games, whatever it was. They said that they're going to do something similar for Sunday Ticket. People thought they were going to be incorporating chat functionality or live viewership functionality, right? So imagine if Pat McAfee could have a stream on his YouTube channel while watching a Sunday NFL game and you're doing it on YouTube TV through Sunday Ticket, right? Like that seems cool. That seems important. That seems something that DirecTV wouldn't have ever been able to do. So those are the things that I think got people excited. And whether you use those things or not or you care, it doesn't really matter, right? Because you're still able to watch the games, the functionality is fine, the quality is fine, whatever. It's just additional things that I think are helpful that give people optionality. And I'm still excited for a lot of that kind of stuff. I just think that we're, we're entering this weird world now where cable really doesn't look so bad anymore, right? You know, there's certainly services where depending on the number of boxes you have in your house, you could be paying two, three, even $400 for cable. So these services, whether they're $70 or $100 or $900 for the year, are still cheaper. They're definitely still cheaper. But as a sports fan, you have to have cable for sure. Maybe you have a streaming service, but you have to have all the other stuff too. You have to have ESPN Plus. You have to have Peacock. You have to have Amazon. You have to have you know everything. HBO, if you want to watch some of the shows, you have to have Netflix to watch Drive to Survive. It, it, it's getting really, 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 really expensive. Everything has been unbundled. And now the leagues are going to be the one profiting from this stuff because what does the NFL do, right? We just talked about it. Peacock, they go sell one individual game. The Super Bowl might eventually be on freaking pay-per-view if it continues this way. And I wouldn't doubt that, right? Like I joke about that and other people joke about it. But at the end of the day, the NFL is here to maximize revenue. And whether it comes at the advantage of the fan or not, I think that's to be determined. My guess is they want to make fans happy. They want to make the experience easy. They want to increase access. They want as many viewers as possible. But the Peacock deal, that's going to be like an all-time lower viewership. I guarantee it. I guarantee it. There's no way that they're going to get, you know, 20, 40 million fans to watch a wild card game on Peacock. It's just not going to happen. And again, this is really, really, really valuable for Peacock, but they're paying a lot of money for it. They'll get a bunch of signups. But there is no way that the NFL decided this was to maximize viewership. It's all about money and it's all about optionality and it's all about developing leverage. So my point on this is pretty simple. YouTube TV better figure out their shit before fall comes around. I think everyone will agree on that. This cannot happen during football season. People were pissed during basketball season, and there's going to be five, 10 times more viewers when it comes around football season, depending on the game or the week, and people will be pissed. They'll get a lot of shit. They'll get cancellations. They have to add some of these other channels that they've been missing. I would love to have MLB Network back specifically. The NHL Network would be great. Access to some of the RSNs would be awesome too. But I wouldn't hold your breath on that. I think at the end of the day, YouTube TV is a business. They're out here to maximize revenue and create shareholder value for their parent company. So we'll see what happens. They'll get it together. My assumption is NFL continue to look out MLB, NBA, whatever it is. The, the NBA is one to watch too. They have these rights coming up. They're looking to get $75 billion. My guess is, right, they start to dip their toes in the water just like the NFL with the streaming services and allocate a chunk of games to streaming services too. 
But this is the world we live in today. There's a bifurcation in rights. These leagues are demanding as much money as possible. And each business has a unique advantage by going out and buying individual games or individual packages because they are seeing where there's value, right? Apple, when they did the thing with MLS. They're paying $250 million a year, which actually really isn't that much. If you think about per team basis, there's now 30 teams in MLS. I think that's $8 million per team if you were to divide that, which really isn't that much considering they have revenue share and other stuff like that. But actually, funny enough, we'll get to that on Monday. I'm going to write Monday's newsletter on MLS expansion. They added a new team, $500 million fee. And there is a fascinating story here about the business behind the MLS, how much expansion fees are, where profitability is coming from in the future of the league. So hold with me there. Make sure you check out Monday's episode and Monday's newsletter. I'll be breaking all of that down along with a couple other things too. But last but not least, I hope everyone has an incredible weekend. Get outside, enjoy some time with family and friends, chill, relax, watch sports. It's going to be a good one. Please make sure to subscribe to this podcast, rate it, review it, whatever it is, share it with your friends. It's a gentleman's agreement. You guys know the deal by now. I create great content. It's completely free to you. You guys share that content so I can keep doing it and we can grow the podcast. Thank you so much. Have an amazing weekend. Goodbye.